Now you did hear Mr. Crawford making reference to uh, Murphy's Loft, the meetings 60 years ago, first mission Dr. Paisley had in the area. Uh, I never knew about Murphy's Loft until I came to Carry Duff just about 20 years ago. And it's really lovely, of course, to have known our brother Graham from that time and to know various members of the family. And we're really delighted that you're here, brother. We thank you for your gifts and talents. And he's going to minister to us now. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. And uh, I was talking to Wilfie about uh, that mission. And I actually uh, discovered something that you would like to see, Wilfie. And it's an old... Uh, uh, book that my father kept of all the income uh, into the loft uh, round about those years and he has he has the payments in on the left and all the dates and all the uh, outgoings on the right hand side here and I see that in February 1960 there was a certain Frank McClelland gave my father a pound and I see on the next page that there was a mission. It must have been at the end of May, the start of June, 1960. And uh, the income for that mission was, from the people, I think, 10 pounds. And there's a certain Mr. Paisley here is getting 10 pounds out. So I hope that that will be a wee bit of information for you uh, tonight. Thank you. Right, I've been invited to uh, sing along here tonight, and I'll do it in a wee, uh, I'll sing and then I'll play and then I'll sing. Um, maybe do them sort of uninterrupted. I'm going to sing for you The Haven of Rest, and then I'll do a piano solo, uh, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, and for you musicians that'll be in the key of F, and How Great Thou Art, uh, that will be from B flat up to C eventually. And then uh, one piece that I remember, uh, the, the, the Carried Off Quartet used to sing uh, a lovely piece. It was entitled The Unveiled Christ, and I'll finish off with that. <clears throat> My soul in sad exile was out on life's sea, so burdened with sin and distressed. Then I heard a sweet voice saying, make me your choice, and I entered the haven of rest. <clears throat> I've anchored my soul in the haven of rest. I'll sail the wild seas no more. The tempest may sweep o'er the wild stormy deep in Jesus I'm safe evermore I yield 
yielded myself to his tender embrace and faith taking hold of the word my fetters fell off and I anchored my soul the haven of rest is my Lord I've anchored my soul in the haven of rest I'll sail the wild seas no more the tempest may sweep o'er the deep in Jesus I'm safe evermore oh come to the Savior he patiently waits to save by his power divine
blessed Christ of beauty was filled off from human view, but through suffering, death, and sorrow, he has rent the veil in two. Oh, 
But on your behalf, we do want to especially thank our brother Graham for coming tonight, and not only ministering in song, but uh, playing the piano. And we, we thank the Lord for that gift and talent. It's wonderful to be able to sing, but to be able to sing and play, uh, that's really tremendous, and we've been blessed tonight. So thank you very much on behalf of everyone here. Really good to have you all. We do again thank you for coming. We thank you for your gifts to the work of God. We've received a gift of 50 pounds. I also received a gift of a thousand pounds for the building fund. Do you remember the building fund in your prayers? And we trust and pray the Lord will bless us and help us as we go forward as a church. As again, we invite Dr. McClellan to come and minister to us. Thank you. I'm glad that um Graham sang the last piece that he sung because um, we had a quartet started in his dad's house and uh, it became famous as the Carrie Duff Quartet but not until I left it. Once I left then it became a good quartet and was quite uh, famous. We're delighted to be here tonight in uh, Carrie Duff again. My wife and I, we have spent almost 50 years in North America but Carrie Duff is always home to us and we're so happy to be back among old friends. Used to be a youth fellowship we had, but now we need to rename it the Old People's Fellowship because you're looking up and you see somebody's a lot older than was here way back in those years and I'm looking down and I can see a few wrinkles and so on down there. So time is passing on, but it's a delight, delight for us to be here and a special delight to be here in your new building it was a long time in coming, but it's here, and it's worth the wait, and so we rejoice with you at this time. Now, I'm not preaching in this visit over here, just here for a couple of weeks. I'm not preaching because I'm too old to preach anymore. Uh, I tell people when they ask me, how old are you? I say, I'm a dyslexic 38-year-old. So if you don't know what that means, you can go to the dictionary. <laughs> you can find out uh, what it means. But it's a delight to be here, and uh, I'm not preaching, but when I heard that uh, you folks were having ministers give their testimony, I said, well, I think I can do that. Uh, so I was asked to give a testimony, and I want to say at the beginning that every Christian has a unique story, and some of them, like the Apostle Paul, are very, very dramatic. Others, like Peter, whose life we have just finished studying, Others, like Peter, came quietly to the Lord. But every one of us, we are not clones. We're all, we're all different, and God has given us a different testimony, uh, but it's all to the saving grace of the Lord our God. Now, tonight, in giving this testimony, I don't want to give you just a chronological report because those can be very boring, and especially in my case, I'm dealing with oh, over 80 years and trying to get it into uh, manageable proportions. Uh, so what I want to do is just um, weave into my testimony some of the lessons that I've learned in life. And I'm going to put it in two parts. That's the first of all, with regard to salvation and with regard to uh, service. Now, I hope the word will be a, an encouragement to you. I'm thinking of anybody here who's not saved, that you'll think seriously about the things we have to say and that you will come and trust the Lord. I'm also thinking of anybody who's sitting with a false profession, as I once had, that you may uh, change the false one for the real thing and come to know the Savior and to follow him. And I'm thinking especially of the young people 
because you may be wrestling in your mind with regard to uh, the future and what uh, the Lord wants you to do. And I want to encourage you to make sure that you know the mind and the will of the Lord because the Lord leads you in marvelous and wonderful ways. And when we think of her testimony over this past number of years, it just amazes me how great and how good is the Lord we adore. Not always easy, sometimes very difficult situations, but the Lord, he blesses us. Now, first of all, one of the very first lessons I learned was as a boy of four. I was born in... Lagan Valley Hospital in Lisburn in 1936, so you know how old I am. And I was born to a small farm over there in the Mielich, not very far away uh, from here. We had a happy childhood, but one of the early lessons was the gravity of uh, uh, life and also the certainty of death, because I was just two days after my uh, fourth birthday when my father died and uh, I remember vividly his funeral and uh, I remember a couple of strong men lifting me up to the coffin out in our farmyard and uh, putting a little a little sprig of primroses on the um, coffin. So I learned very early in life that life is not forever and that all of us are going to die. And keep that in mind. Everyone here someday uh, will be dead. You are uh, going to die. Now, in 1942, I got a new father, Yvonne's dad. And uh, he was, um, I always called him just John. Because my mother, she was a McClelland from Scotland. She came over to Ireland, married my father, McClelland, here in Northern Ireland. Then when my dad died, she married my dad's cousin, and so she was married three times and never changed her name. Uh, so she was McClellan uh, uh, right uh, through her life. And uh, I got a new father in the John, and those were happy days, and he was so good to me, and uh, far probably as good to me as my, as my um, real father would have been. But there were also serious and sad days, because I remember looking out of the end window of our farmyard in 1942, and I saw a great big light up in the sky, and I thought that light was the light of the moon, but it wasn't the moon. It was a flare that was dropped by the German fighters coming in to bomb Belfast in 1942. And I remember uh, hearing the whistle of the bombs or dropping the bombs just over our farm. And you could hear them whistling down uh, to the aircraft factory and also to the uh, shipyard where they wanted to destroy. But they've missed them, but they got a lot of other things. And uh, my stepfather, John, took me in the morning down in our little Morris 8 car, uh, down to Belfast, down Cromick Street, and out to the markets there. And we saw bodies piled up, about uh, 700 of them, I think it was, at that time. And so impressed upon us was the brevity of life and also the wickedness of man. And it hasn't stopped because you heard what happened and then that last day in the States, two more mass murder situations. 
20 killed in one place with 26 injured, another place in Ohio, nine killed with 27 injured. We are living in a very, very wicked day, and people are going to die, and the important thing is that you're ready for death. C.S. Spurgeon, the great preacher, he lived in the time when the railway travel was just beginning, and he said how wonderful it was uh, to be uh, standing in the station. He was going to preach somewhere. Uh, how wonderful it was to stand in the station and you could hear the whistle of the train, the horn of the train in the distance, getting closer and closer. But he said how good it was to be able to pat your pocket and feel the ticket there for the journey. And friends, death is coming down upon us. It's coming like an express train. And every so often we hear the horn as in these situations that have happened. That's why we need to be ready for that day so that we will go home to glory uh, to be with the Lord. The next lesson I learned was we were brought up in the Reformed Presbyterian Church in Knockbracken. And um, our family was a religious family, but they weren't saved. And uh, at 10 or 11... There was a Baptist Sunday school started not far from us, and I learned a lesson that amazed me, and that was that it's possible on earth to know that you're saved. I remember I could take you to the place in our house where my mother told me that she had gone to a mission somewhere and heard the gospel, and she told me it was possible on earth to know that when you die you're going to heaven. And I thought that very, very strange, and it certainly had a great impact upon me. And shortly afterwards, she came to know the Lord, and then my stepfather, he came uh, to know the Lord. And uh, I, too, knew I needed to come to know the Lord, but I fought against God. And young people, that may be what you're doing. You know what the Lord wants you to do, but you're fighting and fighting. Let me tell you, if you knew how great God was and how big God was, we can't fight against God. And you can't win and prevail. So far better to yield the puny arms of rebellion to him and be saved by the, the grace of the Lord. Now, in 1948, we had a change of church. And this is quite amusing for us. And it's good to see Margaret here tonight, Dr. Paisley's sister, because uh, one of our neighboring farmers, Joe Stevenson, some of you know him, uh, Joe's dead now, of course. Uh, Joe came to John and he said, John, you, you like to hear good preaching, don't you? And John said, yeah, I do. And uh, uh, he uh, said, well, uh, I was at an orange platform there a while ago and I saw this raw, red-faced young fella. And he was up on a platform by the back of a lorry, a platform with all kinds of very suave ministers with their, their uh, regalia and so on. And Joe said, oh, I must listen to hear what this fellow has to say. And then when he heard him, he, said, he couldn't believe it. Uh, so he says, I think he's, he has a, a church somewhere in Belfast, maybe the Ravenhill Road. So my dad, he checked the, uh, the newspaper, found the Ravenhill Evangelical Church as it was then. And uh, uh, my dad, he uh, uh, took us and we went down uh, for our first service in the uh, Ravenhill Church. And that was such a difference because in the Reformed Presbyterian Church, which I greatly respect, I have to say, in the 
a Reformed Presbyterian church. It was very, very quiet, and you didn't talk. Uh, and if anybody dared speak in the service or before the service started, it was uh, uh, just a whisper. But into this church, it was well filled with people, and there's a lot of noise as people were talking, and people actually seemed to be happy which was something that I had not really seen before. Uh, so we took our seats in the middle of the, the church and we waited for the service to start. And uh, uh, the next thing I hear, uh, two large feet uh, coming down the linoleum aisle, down like this here. And uh, what, what's happening now? And then there was a mighty shout, Hallelujah! And my mother and dad and I, we jumped out of the seat because we had never heard like this in the church before. And down the aisle came uh, the big man and up into the pulpit. And he was just 22 years of age at that time. Now you think of a church today calling, uh, uh, he was called a couple of years before that. You think of a church calling a young man at 20 years of age to be a minister. It's a measure of the strength and the power that the Lord had given to his service, uh, to his sermon. And what really uh, impressed me was, first of all, the hearty singing. Uh, they sang really in the church with joy and with rapture, and that, that impressed me. And then the forceful preaching. I had never heard the like in uh, the churches that I had gone to, but this man, I, I thought, this man actually believes what he's preaching. And then the thing that really impressed me was his ability to pray. He prayed with power that uh, I had never experienced before. And so it was uh, a wonderful change for us. And uh, we never went back again to original church and have been connected with the free church since back then in 1948, before it was a free Presbyterian church. Then the next thing I discovered was the futility of a, of a false profession. Because for five years I lived a double life. Now, Mr. Paisley made very strong appeals of, to, for sinners in those early days. And uh, I sat through them. And uh, what he would do at the end of the preaching of the gospel, and he was a powerful gospel preacher, at the end of the preaching, he would ask all the believers to stand. And all around me, people are standing. And I was honest, I knew I'm not a believer, I'm not a Christian. So I had to sit. And uh, the, all the, the people are looking at you, you know, you, they're all standing and looking at this hapless character here who is, is not a Christian. So one of the workers came, and it wasn't Dr. Paisley, one of the workers came to me and he, he said, would you like to be saved? Well, I didn't have the courage to say no. Uh, so he says, well, come with me. So I went with him into the uh, inquiry room, and he was very sincere and gentle, and he thought he led me to the Lord. But I knew in my heart that my heart was still as black as sin and that I was not changed or transformed in any way. But this was good because now when I went to the church the next Sunday and he called the believers to stand, I could stand and did stand. And so people thought that I was a believer. And for five years it went on and I suffered every Sunday because a conviction of sin it came up into my heart and it was a, a powerful thing. Now I wonder, is there somebody here tonight 
like me. And you know what to say. You know how to behave on the Lord's day. But deep down, you know you're not right with the Lord. My friend, don't put off getting right with the Lord because a false profession is no good when you come to face the Lord at the end of your life. So I worked in the aircraft factory at Shorten Harlands at that time, and I was an apprentice there. And I was a good boy on Sunday, as far as people were concerned. He's a believer. But I knew in my heart that I wasn't and that things were not right and I lived a a life that was far from good for the rest of the week. So if you're here with a false profession, get that put right and get the real thing before it is forever and ever too late. Then another lesson was the, the tranquility of conversion. What a blessing that was. There was a mission came to the King's Hall in 1955 conducted by the American evangelist Jack Schuller. He was a great preacher, and he was reckoned to be a better preacher than his contemporary uh, Billy Graham at that time. And that mission was there, and my wife. Uh, now, I was the more uh, religious of the two of us. Now, we weren't married at that time, of course, uh, but uh, uh, she went along on the Thursday night, and she sang in the choir that they had there, which was a lot of uh, fun for her, uh, and she wasn't a Christian either. But that night she came to the Lord. And then the next night we went out together, and she preached me <laughs> the greatest sermon that I've ever heard, I think. <laughs> she gave me a rough time, and she told me that she'd come to the Lord. And I knew uh, from speaking to her and seeing her face that there was a change in me, and that she, would not, uh, she was not the same person. So that night, the next night, Saturday, I went to the mission and then I, I gave my heart to the Lord publicly on the 17th of June, 1955. And the war was over. I had fought against God. I had no peace. But now I have surrendered to the Lord and the war was over. And driving home, I remember taking the cigarette packet and throwing it out of the car as we drove home. And I thought, this is great. This is wonderful. But on Sunday morning, I went along to, uh, not Monday morning rather, I went to work in Shorten Harlands, and I worked with another apprentice, and I told my buddy John that I got saved. He says, what? I said, I got saved on the weekend, and I come to the Lord. And they looked at me, and he wasn't being really hard or anything. He just said, I'll give you six months. And he was right. I, I didn't think of it at the time, but he was right. Because in a short time, I went back to my worldly ways, and May went back to her worldly ways, and so things were not good at all. And I want this lesson to sink into. If you're a backslider, you are living the most miserable life on God's earth because you've tasted of the blessing of the Lord, but now you've gotten away and you can never be satisfied by the world. And so I think the Lord allowed us to go through that to teach us the lesson of backsliding. The backslider is a miserable, a miserable uh, person. Now in uh, June 1956, uh, we were still going to the Dr. Paisley's church on the Ravenhill Road. And uh, he uh, preached some mighty messages in June of 19. 56. Now, I was a motorbike fanatic. 
I still like motorbikes, but at those days, I was a complete and utter fanatic. Remember going to the Temple 100 in 1948 and was amazed to see these guys racing motorbikes. And I thought, this is wonderful. And I aspired even myself to go along that way to some degree. Uh, so um, I was a fanatic. And I learned it at the church, at Knockbracken Church. Not from the pulpit, but after the service on a Sunday, that was three or three o'clock in the afternoon, I think, and went into Hammy Clark. He was the, the sexton of the church. And some men would gather with him, and they'd talk about the motorbike race on the day before. And I had never heard of motorbike racing at this time, and I was just fascinated listening to them. And so I learned uh, uh, the wrong ways at that time and was a complete fanatic. Now, in the Ravenhill Church on a Sunday, Dr. Paisley was preaching so powerfully and so mightily that I was under great conviction of sin. And uh, I thought, well, I want to go to the, I think it was called the, you know, the, um, the Dundrod 200 race up at Dundrod in 1956. I want to go to that at the end of June. But I'm not uh, going to get this thing, uh, the Lord, straightened out until after that's over. So Mr. Paisley made an appeal for souls and some hands went up and mine didn't go up. But I felt bad. The next Sunday, the preaching was wilder again and the, the conviction was just unbearable. So he, he makes an appeal on the second Sunday and again, people responded, but uh, I didn't. I kept my hand down. I want to go to this motorbike race. Once I get that over, then I'll get this matter of Christianity straightened out. And then the third Sunday, I was so under conviction of sin that when he made the appeal, my hand was forced up and I gave myself to the Lord and uh, I came back to the Lord and was blessed by him. And shortly afterwards, uh, my wife, she came back to the Lord as well. We were just, uh, of course, going out together at that time. We got married in 1958 and uh, we determined to put the Lord first in our lives. I had the opportunity of going to Seattle to work for Boeing in 1958, but it wasn't the Lord's timing because there were some things that had to be done here before I went away. One of the things Wilfie mentioned there about the mission in 1960 in Murphy's Loft. And I believe at that time, the Lord gave us a little glimpse of what revival is really like. And it was a tremendous time of blessing. Now, I think it might have been Brian uh, Murphy, who couldn't be here because of his wife's uh, problem, that uh, Brian, I think he was the one who came to me and said, my dad says that it'd be good to have a mission and have Dr. Paisley. Uh, so anyhow, we got to work on it, and we started the mission, we uh, planned the mission and I look back, you know, we were a bunch of absolute raw recruits. I mean, that, what did we know? Uh, but we had that mission, and it was a tremendous uh, time. Uh, I believe it was a mini revival. Now, on the Saturday night before the mission was due to start on the Sunday, we had a prayer meeting. And in that prayer meeting, we expected to pray from 9 o'clock to maybe 10. That prayer meeting went on to uh, not 10, I went on to 1 o'clock in the morning. 
And I remember it's good to see Pearl here tonight, but uh, our husband, Martin. Martin was kind of quiet. He wasn't a sort of brash sort of person. But I remember to have a picture in my mind to this day, uh, uh, Martin jumping out of his seat and saying, Lord, I can't sit another minute. And he started to pray. And he prayed tremendous prayers. And uh, then uh, Martin's brother, Willie, he was a lovely singer, beautiful singer. And during the mission when he sang, the atmosphere was absolutely electric. And uh, it was a time of uh, great blessing indeed. And uh, the mission was planned for two weeks. It actually lasted five weeks. And uh, the Lord just stepped in in a wonderful way. My brother James could see it then. James had never come to the church with us. But he agreed to come at least one night to the mission. They came this night, and I can see the picture of him going into the little inquiry room, and he came to the Lord. James would like to have been here tonight, uh, but he does a program on BBC in London, Derry. And by the time he gets home, uh, at 6 o'clock, but too late to get down here in time for the service, Yvonne came to the Lord at that mission as well. And Billy, uh, my wife's brother, came to the Lord at that mission it was a, a tremendous time, and uh, I believe that the Lord, he just uh, uh, pulled the veil aside to show us a little bit of what revivals are like and what the Lord could do. And uh, we had a, a wonderful, wonderful uh, time. So we, my wife and I, we came to the Lord, and uh, we uh, followed him. Now to deal with the service aspect, in 1957, that uh, Mr. Paisley had a service for missionary endeavor in the old church. And uh, I was there, and I had felt the call of the Lord or the pulling of the Lord into some uh, sort of full-time service. As a matter of fact, uh, Dr. Paisley and his uh, treasurer, Cleland, who was a relation of both uh, my wife and uh, Billy here, that uh, they spoke to me about uh, going into the ministry, but uh, I felt, no, I don't feel a, a call for the Lord at this time. Uh, so uh, at that missionary meeting, he called for a, a show of hands from young people who are willing uh, to give themselves to the Lord for full-time service. And my hand went up that night, and I was fully determined uh, to serve the Lord. But I had a problem, and the problem was Brazil. Every time I went to a missionary meeting, there was always some, somebody from Brazil who was speaking, and like Bill, Bill Woods and so on. And uh, I thought, Lord, uh, I'll do anything, go anywhere, but, but Lord, not Brazil. And I had some hang-up about Brazil. Uh, but the good thing was that uh, after a while, I began to reason and realize this is not the way it works. You have to surrender your all. And so I said, Lord, even Brazil. But he never did call me to Brazil, uh, but I had to come to that place. And maybe there's some young person here tonight, and you're wrestling with what to do in your life, and you maybe feel the tuggings that I felt about full-time service, that uh, you have to be ready to say, anywhere, Lord. Lead me anywhere. And I had to come to that place, and the Lord... Um, uh, blessed us. Uh, sometimes that call would be bright in my mind and sometimes it was dim. It would be 12 years after that meeting in 19, 
57 before the Lord would call me into his full-time service. We emigrated to Toronto in 1963, mostly because of, of uh, work-related situations. The work was kind of slack and uh, short, so uh, de Havilland of Canada, Toronto, they came and they looked for uh, engineers, and I uh, got a job with them, and we moved out. And we spent four years in Toronto, four happy years, and at that time we joined the famous uh, Jarvis Street Baptist Church where T.T. Shields used to preach, and uh, the current pastor then was uh, Dr. Slade, whose daughter is now working with us and has worked with us for many, many years. Uh, so, uh, again, we were there, and I believe, really, the Lord led us to Toronto to prepare us for something that we didn't know was coming down the pipeline of the will of the Lord. Then the work situation in uh, Toronto got a little uh, iffy and uh, Boeing, the famous aircraft uh, manufacturers, they came to Toronto looking for engineers and I got a job with them and went there and had the privilege of working on the design of the famous uh, 747 the jumbo jet. When I saw it, they made a full-size mock-up of, mock of it. When I saw it, I said, boy, this thing will never fly. Uh, but uh, it did. And uh, I was working there for uh, quite a while. Now, when we went to Seattle, which is in the northwest of the United States of America, we went, Lord, what church are we going to go to? So I checked the newspapers, saw two fundamentalist-type churches, and we went along to one in the morning. And at the end... Uh, we identified ourselves as visitors, and uh, we got what you call the wet fish handshake. You ever got one of those? When you shake hands with somebody, it's like shaking hands with a wet fish. That's why I always encourage people that when you're greeting people coming into the church, you don't know them, make them feel welcome. Because if you do that, then they will possibly come back again. But if you give them the wet fish, They'll never be back again, and we never went back to that church. But the other church that we saw was Bible Presbyterian Church, uh, and um, they uh, uh, had a pastor there, so we went along, and he preached. And in the course of his message, he said, when I was talking to Dr. Paisley, he said, so-and-so and so-and-so. So I thought, well, this is promising because if he knows Dr. Paisley, well, things must be okay. So we went along and we joined that church in 1967. And it was uh, about 20 miles from our house, so we had to travel quite a bit uh, to get to it. Now... Uh, the church in Seattle decided to make uh, start a new church, uh, which is closer to where we lived. And they brought up a pastor from the States called David Brown. And uh, then they asked me to become an elder. And I said, well, I don't really want to be an elder because I had some difficulty with their eschatology. I also had some difficulty with their views on baptism, which were not the same as ours. But they said, that's all right, we'll, we'll overlook that. And so I was made the first elder of the church, and that was back in the, 90, the end of 1968, uh, uh, um, 68, 68, thanks dear, uh, 68. And uh, uh, 
In the meantime, this is a new congregation. They established a commission of presbytery to come and interview the people who were um, wanting to be members. We were interviewed, and others were interviewed, and we were given membership. There was also a man who uh, was interviewed, and he was given membership. But he had, in earlier times, been turned down in the Seattle church because he didn't give a credible confession of faith. And now he's um, applying to our new congregation. And at that time, he gave a credible confession of faith, and so they gave him membership. But from the moment that he became a member, that he would not work with the minister. And no matter what the minister did, that he would not uh, cooperate with him, and it was very, very difficult. So the minister had to report to the commission of presbytery, and when they heard, they withdrew his membership. Now, I'm an elder, and the first piece of business that we had to do was that the, um, uh, uh, the uh, man, uh, he was... Um, uh, I just lost my train of thought. That happens when you get to 83. And uh, that uh, the um, uh, commissioner of presbytery, they, they took away his membership, and then they, they um, uh, asked us uh, if we would meet with him because he asked to have his membership restored. And so the minister and I, now we are a session because we have a, a minister and an elder, uh, so we agreed to meet. And uh, we didn't have a church, so we met in our house. And I was there. And a knock came to the door at uh, 7.30, and the minister and the man, uh, they came. And I brought them into the house. My wife, she was expecting our daughter Joanna at that time. And she went out after they came in. She went out to do some grocery shopping. And so we sat down at the table. Uh, the table in our kitchen, and uh, uh, the minister sat there, and I sat where I am now, and the man, he sat there. Now, <clears throat> the, uh, we met together, and the minister started to read. He read the first 11 verses, verses of Philippians, and that was very, very important. He read the first 11 verses of Philippians, then he led in prayer and prayed for our meeting. And we had just started to discuss the matter in hands when this man here, he bent down uh, at the table and straightened up. And he straightened up. He had a pistol in his hand. And I didn't know guns, but I later, later, later learned that it was a Derringer pistol with two barrels. You pull the hot barrel back. That for the, the, the hammer back, it feeds one barrel, and then you, it goes forward, then you pull it the whole way back, and it uh, fires the second barrel. And so this was a very serious situation. He stood to his feet, and he aimed it over at the minister, and he said, you're dead. And I said, what do we do now? Never been in a situation like this before. So the minister, he stood up, and he began to walk slowly towards the man, and he told him, he says, uh, uh, you're not going to intimidate us with that. And the um, minister, he's walking, and I'm watching, what do we do? And I'm watching this gun going right past me. And uh, when he cleared me, and got the, the man shot, and I hoped that maybe he'd shot him in the arm or something like that, 
but um, he, he fired a shot and uh, uh, so then I knew what I had to do. I grabbed him by the wrist. He was, uh, he was standing and I was sitting and I couldn't get a good grip, but I grabbed him by the wrist and uh, he turned the gun into my stomach and he shouted, you're next. It's so loud that my little daughter, Jill, and I, who was nine, she heard him shouting that. So the gun was into my stomach and I thought, this is the end of the trail. We're, uh, we're going we're gonna to die here. And it was... Uh, a very, very traumatic uh, minute for us, and uh, I hope that the minister, minister wasn't uh, too badly injured. Uh, when I grabbed him by the wrist and he put the gun into my stomach, I had to let go because you can't fight with a man who's a, a gun in your stomach. And uh, so what I did, I ran out from the table across uh, to get to the phone, to phone the police. And uh, halfway across the floor, I heard a second shot. And I turned around, and what happened was that the man, the minister was still standing, and the whole thing took about 15, 20 seconds, that the minister was still standing, and he put his hand up to steady him, and he fired up into his head, and in so doing, he shot the end of his own finger off. Uh, so it was uh, an awful, awful uh, moment. And... Uh, uh, it raised the question, why, Lord? Why would this happen? We have tried to serve thee. We have tried to be the best we can be for thee. Uh, why, Lord, should we uh, suffer this? Well, when I turned to Philippians, he read, the minister read the first 11 verses, the 12th verse. But I would, why would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. And that's the same chapter where it says, Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. And in verse 4 to 23, for I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. And so our dear brother, he died there in our kitchen and lay, fell down on the kitchen floor and he uh, died there, but he went home to a martyr's crown. So that was what he received. I was asking the Lord, why Lord for us? And for me it was the Lord uh, confirmed the call into the uh, gospel ministry and into full-time service. So I had a problem, Lord, I'm willing to go, but where? Do I stay in Seattle here uh, and go into the Bible Presbyterian Church? Do I go back to Toronto and go into the uh, Jarvis Street Baptist Church orbit? Or do I go the whole way back uh, to Ulster and to the free church that was my parent church? Didn't have to wait very long for the answer. The Lord gave the answer in a wonderful and uh, amazing way because... Um, I, my pastor who died, he gave me this daily reading calendar, which I use to this present day. And on that day, which was the 9th of uh, January, 1969, and on that day, the reading was Genesis 31 and 32. Now, I'd only read a short distance when I came uh, to verse 9 of chapter 32. 
where it says, The Lord which saidst unto me, Return unto thy country and to thy uh, kindred, and I will deal well with thee. So the Lord makes no mistakes. And he gave me clear instructions to go back uh, to um, the, uh, the, this native land of Ulster. Now, um, I had a problem. On the Monday, I had gone back to work again. I had to go back to work. And the Monday I come home after the, um, after the uh, work time, and my wife had the dinner ready for us, and she sat it down on the table. And as I sat down at the table, immediately the devil attacked. And he said, you're going to the funeral tomorrow. What happens if this man's wife, who he had put through a gun training course just a short while ago, what happens if in the disturbance of her mind that she would turn the gun on the only eyewitness of what happened? So I couldn't eat that night. Really was a tough. Uh, but I went to the Bible and I took out this here and turned out this was on the 13th of January. And that day the reading was in uh, Matthew chapter uh, 10. And I only read a few verses when it came to this. And fear not them which kill the body. That was my problem. But are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. And so that gave me great peace. And I want to bear testimony that through that awful trauma, we had no greater peace than to read the Word. The Word of God always had something to encourage us. And then after that, we discovered also the throne of grace, that the Lord always gave peace and he gave us instruction and he uh, directed us. So um, it's a good argument for using a daily reading calendar uh, because the Lord very often will use that to speak to you and to guide you. So we had God's comfort in prayer, and we decided uh, we would approach the free church. We accepted to go in as a student, and we had to leave. Now, did you ever try to sell a house that somebody has been murdered in? So we had to sell our house, of course, and we put it up for sale. And in three months, we didn't have one call, not one call. So we had to argue with ourselves, what do we do? Do we stay here to get the house sold? Or do we go? And don't forget that we had a mortgage in the house and we could be bankrupt in a short time. And so we decided the Lord's called us, so we got to go. And we took the, the train from Seattle up to Vancouver, the transcontinental train from Vancouver over to Toronto, where we'd spend a couple of days with uh, Billy and my wife's uh, uh, sister, Anna. And we left, and uh, the house wasn't sold. We left at the hands of a real estate agent. We got to Toronto three days later, and here the, uh, Anna says, oh, there's a telegram here for you. So we looked at the telegram, and you know, wasn't it? The house was sold. So that teaches you 
that when you're going to trust the Lord, very often you have to take the step in faith first of all, and then the Lord will do what you can't do. Uh, so we were led and went back and started study for the ministry, and uh, we spent uh, uh, seven wonderful years in Tandragi, uh, three years as a student minister, and then ordained and uh, there for another four years. We went back to Toronto, and it came about like this here because uh, uh, we had a holiday in Canada, and I spoke in the Bible Presbyterian Church when I was over there, and uh, uh, we uh, come back to Ulster after the holiday, and here through the letterbox came one of those little airmail letters they used to have in the good old days when people actually wrote letters. They got a letter, a little blue one, and it was from the minister of the Bible Presbyterian Church, and he says, I'm going to resign and retire. Would you take up the work? So immediately I got it. I said, may without any, say, pack your bags, we're going back to Toronto. Although we didn't have confirmation at that time. So what we did, um, we began uh, to uh, make preparations uh, for going. I told them that I would be interested in uh, going over there, but only under the auspices of the Free Presbyterian Church. For this reason, that I'm not well known in the Bible Presbyterian Church, but it was pretty uh, well known here. And I knew I could count on the prayer support of all uh, God's people over here, which is what uh, we got, and we were greatly uh, blessed uh, by that. Uh, so um, we uh, uh, set out, and we started in Tandragee, and was there for uh, seven years. But this letter, it came along, and we, uh, I had to argue with the Lord, Lord, um, you brought me home in a promise from Genesis, return unto thy land. I cannot leave unless you uh, give me another promise or give me some other leading. And that came in August of uh, 1976, 75, and uh, it was from Spurgeon from his checkbook of the Bank of Faith. If you haven't got that book, get it and uh, read it because it's so many times Spurgeon has the right word to encourage believers. And... Uh, he gave us a promise there from Deuteronomy, uh, chapter one, uh, chapter two, and uh, chapter one and twenty-one. Behold, the Lord thy God hath set the land before thee; go up and possess it, as the Lord God of thy fathers hath said unto thee. Now I had asked the Lord, Lord, we need leading and direction. We need a promise from you if we're going to go, because as far as I'm concerned, Tandragi or Toronto, I'm happy to stay or go as thou dost lead. And he. Um, uh, give us this promise, but I asked him, Lord, whatever promise you give me, don't give me something that I'm familiar with or something that I could shoehorn into my situation and say that was the leading of the Lord. So I said, show me something in the context of whatever verse you give me that you are directing us and leading us according to your will. Uh, so uh, we got that verse. Behold, the Lord thy God hath set the land before thee, go up and possess it. You can knock me down with a feather. Because the sixth verse of that chapter was, The Lord our God spake unto us in Horeb, saying, Ye have dwelt long enough in this mount. 
Now, people wouldn't think much about that, but we did. Because our address in Tanrigi was 23, 22 amount. I mean, that was uh, to me too much of a coincidence. But then uh, the Lord really gave it to me because in the chapter uh, 2, in verse 7, he says, The Lord thy God hath blessed thee in all the works of thy hand. Every Christian can say that because the Lord has blessed us all. But then not every Christian can say the next bit. He knoweth thy walking through this great wilderness these 40 years the Lord thy God hath been with thee. That was like nothing. Now when you're 30 you don't think much about it. But when you get to 40 you do think a lot about it. And I was just 40 at that time. And so that confirmed it to us that we were to go back to Toronto. And so we did. And uh, we went back into a maelstrom of opposition. Uh, when the ecumenical leaders heard that well, there was going to be a free Presbyterian church opened in Toronto, they went berserk. And uh, when we first went out there, we had a little rented church, lasted four weeks, and then it demolished it. It was interesting, it was an Italian group that demolished it. Demolished it at the behest of the ecumenical movement. And they're the ones who talk to us and tell us about loving one another. And uh, the, uh, the reason for demolishing it was to build a tennis court. Now, tennis begins off love all, which is what the ecumenicals like to say that they are. Love all, but didn't love us, and our building was demolished. And, you know, looking back, that was the best thing that ever happened to us. Because if it had not happened to us, we might be sitting there today. But the Lord forced us out. We, went, uh, we spent two years in a rented uh, high school a facility, having to carry our books and all our stuff every uh, Sunday to the services. But those were great days. And then we were able to buy a house, a church in Warden Avenue, where we're there from 1979 to uh, 94. And then the Lord gave us, uh, in the 90s, a tremendous blessing because we were able to build the new church and to build a new school. Now that brings us to the school. I was never a fan of uh, Christian schools in the early days because I thought you got the problem here of leading young people up in a sort of cotton wool environment where they're, they're uh, watched overall uh, that they do. And so uh, I was a bit concerned about that. But then, the government in uh, Toronto, they stepped into the public school system, which was normally supported by uh, Protestant people, that uh, they banned the Lord's Prayer from the school. Now, what's long, wrong with the Lord's Prayer? But they banned it. And then they banned the Ten Commandments. And I said at that time, you watch that the crime in this city is going to increase greatly because they've turned their back on the law of God and so it has been sadly. And then also they came to ban the Bible from the public schools. And these are paid for by the people. Banned it. Uh, the only way you can take a Bible in there is if you have it in the context of, for example, the Quran uh, for the Muslims uh, and you just teach comparative religion. But uh, once they did that, 
I said, we've got to do something for our children. We can't allow them to be brought up in that environment. And so we started a little school, a crew of Whitfield Christian Academy in the church in Warden Avenue. That was 1989. And uh, we had uh, 16 pupils to start with, 16 uh, pupils. And then the next year, the Lord doubled it and doubled it. And we had to look for more space. So we finally uh, bought a piece of property. And uh, the Lord helped us to build a church and uh, a school. i got to tell you, no time has gone. i got to tell you this about um, the um, buying of that uh, old school. We saw this old derelict school. for It was built in 1872. We saw it for uh, quite a while. Uh, windows broken and all the rest. And then it was fixed up, and it turned out that a woman, she bought it, and she turned it into a daycare center. And then her daughter didn't want to continue, so she decided to sell it. And we wanted to, we looked at it and thought that was just perfect for us. So we asked them, what do you want? And two and a quarter million dollars. We didn't have two and a half million, two and a quarter million dollars. And we didn't have very much money. But... Uh, we uh, looked at it and uh, we decided, well, put an offer in. So we put an offer in at uh, 1.3 uh, or 1.4 million. And we said, we're not going to take that, but we are setting our maximum at 1.5 million. Not if it goes one cent over, that we can't, uh, we can't take it. Uh, so with take it, it wasn't the Lord's leading. Uh, so we... Um, Looked at it and put in the offer, and she came back to us and wanted a 1.7 or something. And then we went back again with our maximum, 1.5, and uh, said, no, we're not going to accept it. So I had to go to our uh, school principal, Miss Slade, the daughter of Dr. Slade, and tell her, Ruth, I'm sorry. It looks like we're not getting our building. Now, while I'm talking to her, the phone rings, and... Uh, I went and answered the phone and picked up the phone and it was the uh, lawyer for the woman saying she has decided to take your offer. But we didn't have the money. But <laughs> that uh, we had a man from Dundalk actually who emigrated out there with his brother and sister in earlier years and he was a carpenter, didn't have very much money uh, but um, his sister died. She had made investments in the pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical industry in America. And her, his brother died. And he, had, he was a financier and had money. So all the money came down to our friend Bert McComb. Now, Bert did not want any of his money to get into the hands of the government. So I thought, well, maybe, maybe Bert could lend us the money and uh, maybe at a better rate than the bank. I'd rather pay him the interest than pay to the bank. Uh, so we uh, got the, um, I, I met with him and I took him to see the school on operation. And I said, Bert, that uh, if you could help us, we'd be happy. If you can't, don't worry about it. That's, uh, we'll leave it there. So the next day the treasurer called me and said, Bert is going to give you uh, a loan of one and a half million dollars. He didn't know what our, our top line was, but uh, he gave a, and eventually he wrote me a personal check, just a personal check for $1.5 million. 
Everybody in the church wanted to touch it, and some of them wanted to borrow it for two or three months to get the interest of it. And so um, it was marvelous just uh, that uh, the Lord raised the right man, and that money was uh, invested way back in the 20s, in the 30s, long before I was even born. But the Lord, he doesn't make any mistakes, and he led us and directed us and so on. Uh, we moved into the Armaiden Church in 94, and we built our senior school. The school has now got 240 pupils, and it's uh, going very, very well. Major change was in 2009 when I officially retired, but I discovered that retirement is a myth. It doesn't really actually work, and I retired. And uh, my son-in-law, Larry Saunders, he took over as pastor for the past 10 years, and he arrives in Ulster tomorrow with his wife, uh, my daughter Jill, who is the principal of our school. One final reflection. By the way, our church uh, started off a purely white church, but now we are a multicultural church. We have, uh, the last count I had, about 20 different nationalities, uh, from China, from India, uh, from Pakistan, uh, from Lebanon, you name it. And we have them there. So the, the Lord was good. And the, our city is a multicultural city. And the church represents that. And I think it's wonderful to see us all together, worshiping the Lord, different colors of faces and all the rest. But the one common denominator is Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. One final reflection. Uh, when May and I saw each other on the Mans Hill down there at Clontnacalli uh, back in 1951, she was coming down from school, uh, and uh, the Clontnacalli school, and I was going up to pick up my sister Yvonne, and uh, I was 16 and May was 13, and uh, I saw her and I liked what I saw, and uh, she saw me and seemed to like what she saw, but uh, we had no idea at that time that we would be married and that we hadn't a clue what the Lord, would be serving the Lord in a far country. But God has a plan for your life and for everyone who knows him for their life. And what a blessing it is when you walk in his way. He makes no mistakes. So young people, you're starting off in life. Right now, you don't know what's ahead of you. You don't know what you're going to do. You don't know who you're going to marry. You don't know what sort of job you're going to have to do. But you have no idea, but the Lord does know, and he will lead you And uh, if you commit your way to him. Closing verse, trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. We look back, we're amazed at the way the Lord has led us, and we rejoice greatly in such a great and loving God as we have. If the Lord touched some soul here tonight and saved them, that would be a tremendous blessing. If the Lord restored somebody who has a, a personal, uh, but only a, a false profession, bring them to the Lord, that would be tremendous. If there's some young person, particularly here tonight, and you have been wrestling with your future and wrestling with the will of God, if from tonight the Lord gave you the grace to say, Lord, whatever, even Brazil, and uh, 
it'd be a blessing to see some young person going into the service of the Lord. I trust that our words tonight, while kind of long, it may be a means of encouragement and blessing to you all.